This episode of The Weeds is brought to you by the Showtime documentary series, The Trade. Uh, the Trade is an immersive five-part series about America's heroin crisis. It's really cool. It's an intense, comprehensive analysis. Uh, the Trade follows the users, the smugglers, the cops, and the cartel. Everybody has a story. Uh, don't miss this. It's, it's a cool new documentary series. It's now streaming only on Showtime. Weeds listeners, uh, if you go to Showtime.com and enter code WEEDS, you can get a 30-day free trial. Uh, the offer expires February 28th, so you know, check it out soon. Uh, it's, it's a cool show. Can we just do this? Can we talk about aliens for the entire episode? <laughs> we are, but not that kind of aliens. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, with me today, we've got uh, Dara Lynn and Zach Beecham, and we are... Not in our regular studio. We're instead in the uh, historic uh, Walt Mossberg office, uh, an internet legend, uh, now retired, has been repurposed as a podcasting temp studio, and it's kind of weird. We're basically in a padded room right now, y'all, so if we go a little loopy by the end of this podcast, you'll understand that we're just playing to type. Yeah, it does look like a combination between an asylum and, like, a weird felt tent. There's no climate control. It like, To me, it looks like one of those, like, Ebola pop-ups, like, isolation units. Yeah, um, when our when our producer, Peter, needs to tell us to do something, he, like, literally pops his head between two of these pads. But so we wanted to talk to you. The news right now seems to be dominated by by Devin Nunes and his mystery memo, but he did not share the memo with us. So we we can't we can't really say anything about it. Um, so we wanted to talk instead about uh, MS-13, the uh, street gang that got it was unusual, I would say, for our president of the United States to spend this much time talking about a, a street gang. Um, he he said he said a bunch of things. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we could be fancy and, and play what he said. Two precious girls were brutally murdered while walking together in their hometown. Six members of the savage MS-13 gang have been charged with Kayla and Nisa's murders. Many of these gang members took advantage of glaring loopholes in our laws to enter the country as illegal, unaccompanied, alien minors and wound up in Kayla and Nisa's high school. This was interesting because most of Trump's State of the Union did not really have policy content to it. He took a lot of victory laps. He reiterated some things he had said before. I think it's fair to say that, you know, less than 72 hours after he delivered the State of the Union, we can say with confidence that most of that State of the Union is going to be forgotten entirely and quickly. Right. But the but the MS-13 part was different. It was I, I know people who listened to it and felt that they just heard a kind of weird local news-esque sort of if it bleeds, it leads rant. But there was an illusion. He didn't dive deep into the weeds, but someone who knows the policy dispute well heard a policy proposal there. And, and I hope uh, Derek can explain to us, like, what, what what is Trump trying to say here? What does he right. want to do? Well, in fairness to Trump, this is usually how states of the union work, right? There are things that in the midst of highfalutin rhetoric, people who are following the issue go, oh, this is a hint that the administration is going to push X policy in the next year. Um, so with Trump, the phrase that he used a bunch of times was enforcement loopholes, right? That there were loopholes in border security and in immigration enforcement that were allowing MS-13 gang members to infiltrate the U.S. That 
sounds like he's just making things up, but he is not. I mean, insofar as there is an actual proposal that the Trump Department of Homeland Security and Republican members of Congress, including John Cornyn, have been really pushing uh, that they think deals with this loophole problem. It is it is not a made up thing. So when people come into the United States from Mexico and are apprehended by Border Patrol, they get special protections uh, if they're children who are arriving without parents or if they're part of family units. The family unit stuff is largely because there are legal settlements about you can't keep children in immigration detention in the same way that you could just keep adults. Uh, But for unaccompanied children, there are, you know, human rights concerns at stake with just like sending kids who are coming on their own back to wherever. So unaccompanied kids who are coming from countries other than Mexico have the right to an interview with an asylum officer. They don't have to like go through immigration court first to do that. They have access to, uh, they can prove eligibility for something called special immigrant juvenile status. And they get held, instead of being put in immigration detention, they're taken by the, the Department of Health and Human Services, which either keeps them in facilities or like finds a relative and turns them over to that relative. That process uh, has been overloaded for the last several several years, especially during the you know big wave from Central America in 2014-2015. And there are plenty of screening problems in it, certainly in HHS's capacity to screen who's taking people. But the Trump administration is concerned that, you know, there are too many people who are being let in, period, that many of these children shouldn't be even allowed to prosecute claims in the United States, that they should just be turned right back around to their home countries the same way that adults are, the same way that kids under 18 from Mexico are. So when they're saying closing enforcement loopholes in the context of MS-13, they're talking about, you know, making it possible for them to send Central American kids directly back, raising the standard for a credible fear interview, which is the initial interview that asylum seekers have to give when they're apprehended to, you know, demonstrate that they have enough of a case that they should be allowed to stay to pursue it. That kind of thing that's going to end up making life a lot harder for Central American children and families who are coming here in the name of catching the MS-13 members who are supposedly invading alongside So I find, I find like the premise of this conversation super weird because it started with this quasi-allegation that MS-13 is infiltrating the United States. And to speak of MS-13 as infiltrating the country, it like it positions them as being like Al-Qaeda, like they have a plot against America, but that's not the kind of gang we're talking about. This isn't even like a Mexican cartel, right? right? It's right. a very yes. different kind of thing. I want to return to that, but I mean, I, I, I just do, I do want to focus in because I think it's important to try to be fair where the opportunity exists, because I, I, I personally am frequently dismissive of Trump administration uh, proposals and, and initiatives. And just to say that the issue here, right, is that people show up, you know, they're minors, they're under 18, uh, but they're not, Some of, they're teenagers, some of them, and they get placed into often communities that have large Salvadoran immigrant populations because that's where relatives might be to come take care of them. Uh, It's not like out of the question for like teenage boys particularly to be caught up in violent gangs. Right. I mean, as a matter of of fact, that's a lot of what the, you know, when teenage 
boys are coming to the U.S. and pursuing asylum claims, they're often claiming that they're being they were being persecuted because they were being pressured to join a criminal right. gang. Right. And so and so the, the gang operates on both sort of sides of the divide. So so on the one hand, people are fleeing from gang violence uh, in El Salvador, but also those same criminal organizations are present in the communities in the United States where they are being sent to. Whether you want to frame it as a like a like a plot, right? Because I mean, I, I guess the the most dramatic framing of this would be to say there's somebody sitting in like MS13 high command, and he's like, you, 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 and you, sixteen year olds, like come to the United States with your bogus asylum claim, get placed into some community on Long Island, and then do your nefarious crimes. That seems a little. A little loopy. Um, That's the same allegation people made about ISIS and European refugees or Syrian refugees going to Europe. Well, and it it also plays very nicely with the Trump administration's insistence on portraying, on conflating the idea of an immigration flow that the U.S. isn't controlling with something that's being directed by a foreign power. Like Mexico isn't sending their best people. The diversity visa countries select their worst people to participate in the lottery. Uh, The Syrian refugees could be the largest Trojan horse of all time. He really likes the idea that if people are coming in and we don't know about them, someone else must be behind that. Right. But but what what is true here in a way that I think is really different from the diversity visa lottery, the the family unification visas, the, these sort of big other changes that, that we talked about last week is that it's a it's legitimately burdensome on an American community to have a bunch of foreign-born teenagers sort of show up in its school system. That, that, that I think, is much more true than to say, like, okay, somebody wants to come from whether it's Africa, whether it's Haiti, whether it's wherever, and, like, they want to go get a job somewhere. Um, And there's a lot of, like, made-up stuff about the economic harms and and things like that. It's quite genuinely true that, like, if you're the principal of a school and, like, suddenly there's these new kids who haven't been in the country, who haven't been, like, in your prior grades, who have connections on various sides to organized crime entities. I, I mean, you read the um, uh, recent New Yorker story about, about MS-13 in, in Long Island, and I, I don't think you read that story and come away being like, yes, Donald Trump is an amazing president, uh, but there's genuinely, like, a problem here. Yeah, I this agree is, that so gangs are bad. This is a really, no, I mean, I think this is a genuinely hard problem on a couple of levels. One of them is that all the attention on immigration has been to keeping people out, not what happens when they get here. And so the in 2014, when you had the you know so-called border surge, nobody paid attention to that until border patrol agents were being overwhelmed with children. But the, you know, the health and human services side, the side that was actually doing resettlement, had been overwhelmed for several years and it had, you know, problems with just turning people over to unscrupulous folks for a couple of years. And it didn't garner any attention because what people are worried about is this image of people coming in from abroad. So they don't have the services. They don't give any financial support to relatives who are taking people in. Often you have people who are being reunited with parents or relatives who they haven't seen in several years because that's the point. Their their parents were here in the U.S. and then their children came and joined them, um, which isn't really a great situation to be in when you're already a teenager and already dealing with cultural displacement. 
And so there is a genuine empirical question of how many people at the time they come to the U.S. have gang affiliations. And the answer to that appears to be extremely few, like something on the order of 150 over four years and 250,000 unaccompanied kids. And and that's all gangs, not just MS-13. It's a very, very low number. And then there's the problem that is harder of how many people who came to the U.S. as unaccompanied minors are are involved in MS-13 gang violence in the United States. And that number appears to be less insubstantial. This gets complicated because you don't know, you know, somebody who ends up involved in gang violence here, you don't know if they were involved or not in El Salvador. Uh, Local law enforcement here certainly has an incentive to say, well, everybody was already a gang member when they got here. And so in individual cases, you'll often see like detectives going, oh, that person wasn't a gang victim. They were a a fellow gang member being disciplined. Uh, But it is a harder policy question to say, well, what role does the federal government have in ensuring the successful acculturation of people who are fleeing legitimate humanitarian violence. At the same time, if the Trump administration is correct in its characterization of MS-13 and these people are irredeemable monsters, that creates a humanitarian obligation to take in people who are fleeing that. So I saw one statistic that of all the unaccompanied children in, or unaccompanied minors more accurately, in a particular county, only 1% were involved in MS-13 violence, which is pretty low overall. Yeah, it is pretty low. But if you look at the nominator of people involved in MS-13 violence, you see a I've seen numbers thrown out that are like 50 to 70 percent, which is wrong. But it is like a greater than 10 percent, you know, in some of in some of the hotspot counties where MS-13 has been super active, like Suffolk County in New York, uh, some of the some of the suburbs of D.C. and Maryland and Virginia, a little bit of activity in Boston and Houston as well. When we're talking about MS-13, we're really talking about those places, which I think is kind of relevant because, you know, this wasn't a group that started on the East Coast. It's not a group that is that has the kind of like regional presence that a lot of traditional street gangs have. It's these a few particularly active enclaves in suburbs of major metropolitan areas with national news outlets. And let's take our break here, because I think now it's it's useful to talk about the the broad history and context here, which is which is interesting and, and quite fraught. Sponsor this week is Movement Watches. It's MVMT Watches. You pronounce it movement. Um, this, is, this is a really cool company. Uh, their goal, they, they want to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality, minimalist products at revolutionary prices. Uh, revolutionary, in this case, means uh, good, affordable prices, not like a new revolution of even more expensive watches. Uh, with over 1 million watches sold to customers in over 160 countries around the world, Movement Watches solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. And, and that's great because, you know, you thought, after Christmas, like you were all done with gifts, but but Valentine's Day is coming up, uh, so, so you know you know you got to find someone good for for that special person in your life. And there's always birthdays, things like that. Uh, you, you know, presents uh, are a fact of life. Uh, also, you might want to watch for yourself. And Movement has some, some really cool stuff. Uh, their stylists have curated an interactive gift guide to make Valentine shopping painless. You can find the perfect gift for him or her, uh, whether that's watches, bracelets, or sunglasses, or any combination of those gifts in a, in a limited edition gift box. Uh, and here's the really cool. Part. You can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com slash weeds. So go to mvmt.com slash weeds and join the movement. So the 
great, like, overarching irony of this all to me is that MS-13 is not a El Salvadoran criminal organization that has come to the United States. I mean, it it's is a cri- that, but it wasn't initially. Wait, right. wait. It's, it's a criminal organization that began in the United States and that was exported from the United States to Central America, from which it has now been re-imported to the, the East Coast, right? But the So the, the origin of this whole situation is that in the 80s, there was a civil war in El Salvador, a, a related civil conflict in Guatemala. Uh, Honduras was a kind of like staging area. And these were these were Cold War proxy battles. Um, in El Salvador, in the El Salvador situation, the United States was on the side of the then regime in both El Salvador and, and Guatemala. Ronald Reagan was president. Immigration politics in the United States was different. In general, border security enforcement was a lot laxer. Uh, than, than it became uh, starting in, in the 1990s. And so many people fled from El Salvador. Uh, in particular, many of them ended up in Southern California. And in Southern California, they came into contact with other street gangs that existed there already. Um, crime was very high in the United States in the 1980s, right? This was, this was like a big thing everywhere. Lots of violent crime everywhere. And so Salvadoran youths begin forming their own gangs in California. Uh, one of them goes on to become the most prominent is is MS-13. It stands for uh, Mara Salvatrucha, something mm-hmm. like that, yeah. uh, which means like the Salvadoran gang. The 13 is like a number they picked up from the Mexican mafia, which has some 13 symbolism in, in a prison it's called gang called MA, which is the 13th letter of the alphabet. Indeed. Although amazingly, Salvadoran pop, uh, politicians to this day say that, uh, are like, oh yeah, they started on 13th Street in Los Angeles, which like, no. That's because of the They're, 18th Street gang, right. which was also operating in Central America and LA. But and there is no 13th Street in Los Angeles. It's, it's, it's very, it's a lot of confused. And that does illustrate it's, the it's sort of weird cross-cultural. It's crowded in mystery. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. There is, there is an element of this where there is a kind of transnational gang, like cholo culture. Um, although, you know, cholo may not be applicable to Salvador in this particular context, but um, that, you know, the what came, what ended up going to Central America wasn't just individuals, but was this idea of like, this is what is cool. Right. This is a cultural syncretism whose origin is in California, not in Central America, right? Although, as it turns out, most of the people involved are of Central American origin. There's there's the 18th Street Gang. The rival it was originally, as I understand it, Mexican, and its composition sort of sort of shifted around. Uh, but so you have this gang in California, and for better or worse, it is the American federal government does not consider this like a really big deal. Right. It's, it's not a criminal syndicate. It's really never been a criminal syndicate. Like, they're not doing, like, massive amounts of drug running. They're not corrupting public officials in L.A., right. it's you know? A, it's, it's, it's a street gang in the, in the classic sense, West Side right? Story. And it's a, it's a, it's a, maybe the LAPD cares about this, but this is not, like, an important global problem, right? And then, when Bill Clinton is president, they decide to ramp up immigration enforcement along a number of dimensions. And one of those dimensions is they realize there's all these Salvadoran guys in prison on various charges, and they want to ship them back to Central America. So 
in effect, we do a like it's like a reverse Mario boat lift or something where we like dump this huge population of criminals on the kind of like shattered societies of the Central American Northern Triangle. Without telling the Salvadoran government, oh, this guy, we're deporting him because he has a conviction in the U.S. Like privacy laws at the time did not allow that information to be shared. And it wasn't it wasn't deliberate exactly. It was like thoughtless, right? I mean, there wasn't... In the way that many things were in the 1990s. I mean, it's not, it's just, this is the way that immigration enforcement discussions happen, right? They're not happening in terms of, well, we can have this population of people in this place or in that place. It's, we can have this population of people here or not here. And not here is always considered to be the better option when it's talking about bad people. The Cold War in Europe had ended and the United States lost interest in the Central American Cold War. And so the once high-level attention given to the ins and outs of domestic politics in Central America became not an important question, right? Right. And so we sent a bunch of people to a country that, as you just said, had been shattered during a civil war that had weak institutions to begin with, where the military had a sort of tutelary role and over the nominally democratic government and really ran the country through patronage networks. So after the civil war in a quasi very weak democracy, you drop a bunch of people who are affiliated with a gang and surprise, surprise, they bring gang politics to El Salvador. And guns, and you're trying to demobilize guerrilla groups, and there's a lot of weapons, and and, and so this becomes a very deeply entrenched problem in El Salvador, in Guatemala, in Honduras, that these become no longer countries that are enmeshed in brutal guerrilla conflicts between Marxist governments and authoritarian military regimes, but they all become countries that have weak governments, sort of democratic governments, but like weak state institutions and lots of gang violence. Well, and it doesn't help that the first policy response from the Honduran and Salvadoran governments was, well, let's let's a segregate our prisons by gang so that we don't have intergang conflict in prison and b let's arrest and incarcerate a bunch of young people that we think are possibly gang members so they're not in the community, which is like smart if your goal is to get people who might be gang members out of the community and deeply not smart if your goal is to prevent the entrenchment of these emerging criminal organizations because you've just stuck a bunch of gang leaders and people who might just be peripherally gang affiliated in the same space with nothing to disrupt their attempts to consolidate their business activities. This happens with terrorist groups and gangs, right? That when you put people in prison— they, the term that you hear a lot from law enforcement and intelligence people is finishing school, right, is that they learn to be more effective, more entrenched, more vicious members of whatever militant group or, or criminal group that they are. And so or, – or just get recruited in the first place, right, yeah. if they're just a random kid who may or may not be a member of a gang. And in a lot of these countries, they didn't do a lot of rigorous screening before they threw people in prison. Uh, then they they – join the gang essentially out of self-interest or because they're forced to in prison. Yeah, there's actually some some observers think that this is what made MS-13 such a problem in the U.S. to start with, that they were not, that they were initially a kind of like, you know, stoner teen gang, not actually that much worse than what you think of in like, you know, is the actual youth gangs of the 50s, the kind of legit dangerous stuff that, you know, West Side Story and the Fonz maybe have glossed over a little bit, but that once they got into the prison system in Southern California in the 80s, that's where they actually became a criminal organization. Wait, and there's... 
so so you now have this stronger or, or more endemic sort of gang activity in Central America. And then you continue to have Central American immigrant communities in the United States. And then for a variety of, I don't know, push-pull immigration dynamics, people start continuing flows of people from Central America keep coming to the United States. And the gang becomes a multinational presence that exists both in the United States, in the Central Triangle of of Central America, and to an extent in Mexico as like a, a pipeline kind of dynamic. And it starts to show up near East Coast cities, right? And so that's where um, the Washington, D.C. area has a large Salvadoran population. There's come to be a large Salvadoran population on Long Island. And it seems like the media salience of this whole thing pertains a lot to its arrival on the East Coast. That to an extent, like street crime among Latinos in Southern California was not like an interesting topic of national politics in America. Um, This is a a very typical sort of like ethnic crime dynamic where almost all of the victims are other members of the same ethnic community. I'm sure there was concern in California politics always about local crime in Los Angeles. I, I don't happen to live there, but like that's how things go. But it takes... Particular things have to happen for this kind of stories to become a, a national political issue. Uh, but one thing that helps get something on a national radar is when crime is happening suddenly in the suburbs of the country's capital city. Um, and MS-13 is also – they were a little spectacular in a, in a weird way. I mean Trump will often dwell on this in the speeches about like the use of knives and like hacking people's bodies off. And, and I remember 15 years – I mean long before Trump was a, was a politician. Um, but, you know, I, I lived in D.C. There was some, some MS-13 crime. And whenever, whenever the story – there's a lot of crime in the D.C. area. But like whenever the story was like somebody got their arm lopped off with a machete rather than got shot in the head, it – it just sort of like it blows up more. Like it's weirder. Um, they have face tattoos, which is also weird. And there's a kind of um, I, I don't know what, just like a, like a mediagenic nature to some of this. Uh, yeah, there's there's a point about criminal justice politics that I want to make here. But I first kind of want to like Zach, you alluded to this, you know, way a bit ago. Um, but Matt kind of described MS-13 as a multinational organization and. That is going to sound to a lot of people like, you know, transnational criminal organization, which is the government official term for what we think of as like international organized crime or international cartels or anything like that. And, you know, you kind of stuck a pin in this earlier that that is a bad way to think about MS-13. Yeah, we we don't know that there's actual coordination between like the three central power locations of MS-13, which are typically or classically Los Angeles, the Washington, D.C. area, and El Salvador itself. We don't know if there's, like, how much people talk to each other between these two groups, and there's real disagreement among experts who study MS-13, and they don't do a lot of, like, transnational drug running. They don't do a lot of, like, really high-level money laundering. The kind of thing that you associate with an international criminal syndicate just doesn't happen. It's really street-level human trafficking, extortion regimes, like the classic 
Uh, my favorite example of this is when they went to the bus drivers in El Salvador's capital and were like, you go on strike and you demand more money to give to us. And if you don't go on strike, we kill you. And then they went on strike. And like, that's a really dramatic problem for El Salvador's capital, but it is not a transnational coordinated with the DC branch or the LA branch or the Long Island branch sort of thing. It's more disaggregated. It's more local and driven by immediate concerns than it is some kind of international planning. And it's also the kind of crime that has to take as its victims other members of the Salvadoran community, because if you're going to try to extort somebody in the U.S. by saying, if you don't pay us, we'll kill your family back in El Salvador, like that only works when you can credibly threaten to find and kill their family. It's not going to work if you go up to, you know, somebody in a white neighborhood and say, we'll kill your family back in, you know, Columbus. But there's there's an interesting angle here that I don't I don't fully grasp, which is that it's it's again, it's pre-Trump, right? It's it's back in 2012 that the American government makes the it looks idiosyncratic to me, decision to like take this one of several like Latino street gangs mm-hmm. that operate in the United States and give it this designation as like a high-level transnational criminal organization with Treasury Department sanctions and this kind of thing where if you if you just read the press releases at a high level, you would say, okay, this is like uh, something I've seen on TV about like the Russian mob and yeah. like controlling the ports and, you know, billion dollar money laundering schemes. But then when you read just like concrete like MS-13 crime stories, it's I, I don't want to make light of it because obviously murdering people is terrible, but it but it's invariably like they killed this one guy. Right. Like this not is- like not like they they ran the unions and corrupted the politics of the whole city and smuggled a giant shipping container full of heroin. Like yeah, this it- is the weird thing about the politics of crime is MS-13 specializes in the kind of over-the-top, extravagant, yes, we are demonic, yes, you know, they like throw Hence up— the face the- tattoos. Right, right. And like the Judas Priest devil horns and that kind of thing, like— That is what they do. They do not do the white-collar, button-down side of things that is where the actual money and power comes from. But politicians get political leverage out of the, you know, spectacular crime. All of their policy tools are—or, like, the serious federal policy tools, at least, are designed to go after the serious money and power guys. So you have the Treasury Department, which, like— has no role in cracking down on street crime, making this transnational criminal organization designation. You have ICE's uh, HSI, Homeland Security Investigations Unit, uh, doing a lot of this kind of thing. And Matt, I, I, I don't know that I have a great answer for you on why the why MS-13 got designated a transnational criminal organization in 2012. Like it was basically there were three actual transnational criminal organizations that were initially designated under this executive order. And then they're like a couple of years later. And MS-13 is really bad, dudes. Uh, some analysts have speculated that that's because the Salvadoran government had just signed had just like brokered a semi-secret and then not secret truce between MS-13 and the Barrio 18 gang. Uh, and so the, the U.S. government was strongly opposed to this truce and was trying to maybe send a message to the Salvadoran government that, like, you may be fooled, but we know these guys are thugs and they're going to come back and bite you in the end. That's possible. It's also possible that this is just bureaucracy creep and that ICE had wanted to expand its toolbox to go after this gang because MS-13, you know, what you were talking about with the 15 years ago Uh, spectacular violence then, like MS-13 had the kind of place in the media imagination then that it has now. It's not, you know, this is 
this is yet another dynamic that Donald Trump did not create. He just has known he's been able to take advantage of much better than any national other national politician, because the way that you hear about violence that is happening to people who aren't you, but theoretically in your community, in a community that has the same name as yours, that's in the same metropolitan area, is through like TV news. It's through the media. It, it's enough to make you feel like you could theoretically be in danger without actually putting you in danger. And when you have segregated communities where it's the people who are actually empowered to vote are white people who aren't involved, and the people who are actually being victimized are Latinos who are aren't necessarily, don't necessarily have the power to vote, that is either going to result in people not caring at all, which is what you kind of have seen in, you know, which is what you see when there isn't spectacular violence. It's what you see with non-MS-13 gangs. Or they're going to care a great deal and demand that something, anything be done quickly. Ah, which is how you get the government saying, well, what tools do we have at our disposal to go after these people? And then trying to use the tools, whether they're the best tools or not. I will also, in, in defense of freaking out about crime in your community, I mean, I, I was living in, in, in Columbia Heights and, you know, there was like a an MS-13 shooting on my block or, or I guess it was a bludgeoning. Um, and then one of the other, the, the Vatos Locos, who was the, the gang they were fighting with, they like shot up the 42 bus as people were on it. Um, it. It is probably true that statistically, as a purely non-involved person in this gang conflict, I was not actually at any kind of risk. But I think it is very understandable that if you hear that like somebody got murdered at your kid's high school, you're not like super into like doing the math. I'm like, well, is my daughter really at risk here? Like it's it's legitimately alarming. But I, I don't want to belabor this comparison, but I think it's instructive again because this is how terrorism works too, right? Yes. Like when you commit truly spectacular acts of violence, when you kill a lot of innocent people at a school, uh, you blow up a discotheque, you do things like that, people notice and it scares them. And... Ter for terrorists, that's political, right? The goal is to terrify right. governments into doing something stupid. For street gangs, especially MS-13, spectacular violence is designed to instill fear among the population. It makes your extortion, extortion regimes and rackets more effective. It allows you to more effectively corrupt politicians because they're scared about what happens to their family or their constituents. Like, there's lots of value from a street gang point of view in being really scary. The downside is that it makes national-level politicians more likely to pay attention to you and do things like slap sanctions on your uh, six most famous leaders or whatever, which is what the U.S. government did. But, but not but, that it but, mattered that but much. But this is also what was a little crazy about the way Trump has taken this issue into national politics, right? Because that State of the Union speech was almost like a – it was almost like an ad for MS-13. You, you know what I mean? You have this, like the president of the United States, right, is like talking about like how awesome basically like this one criminal organization is and how they're like so much more scary than all the other ones out there, right? It's And, and he's not giving a speech. He's not saying like, look, we have some suburban jurisdictions that don't necessarily have the resources on the ground to handle a surge in gang activity. And so that's why I'm directing like some extra federal agents but, to, but like, wait, come in on. there. Is there help. really a surge? Like, we were looking at the statistics yesterday. Well, I, I don't, there, there is definitely a surge in spectacular violence. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just saying there's, there's like, trying to handle a problem constructively. Yeah. And there's, like, trying to increase the extent to which people are freaked out. Right. And this was definitely increase the extent to which people are freaked out. Right. Like, the specific 
thing that Trump has done with the allocation of federal law enforcement resources is like the opposite of focus immigration enforcement agents on MS-13 hotspot violence areas, right? Like he has rolled back an effort to sort of like use ICE as a kind of secondary gang task force and is moving more forward on, I mean, Derek, you, you've written this on like- Yeah, no, no, I just, people... I, I want people to be clear that the division of ICE that does this kind of investigation is not the division of ICE that does everyday enforcement. I think it's much more like, the, the problem is much more that uh, if you talk to any police chief or sheriff or whatever in a jurisdiction where MS-13 is active and you ask them about the president's rhetoric, all of them will say at best- I don't really want to get into politics. Like, or it's good that he's calling attention to the issue. None of them think that it's actually helpful for him. It, not the rhetoric per se, but but they know that the way he's done immigration enforcement has made it harder for them to talk to immigrants in their communities about whether they've been threatened by MS-13. Right. So yeah, it's you're right that it's that it's the opposite of that. I do kind of want to like Zach. You did mention the statistics. I do want to like talk a little bit about that because it's. It's also, it really isn't clear whether there's actually, whether people are more at risk because of this or not. Right. When we were looking up homicide rates, there was a decline in D.C. in the past year, a pretty substantial one, the D.C. area. There's a pretty substantial one in Suffolk County, which is, uh, you know, in New York, where another big MS-13 presence is. It just, it doesn't strike me that there's been a recent uptick in overall murder rates. Like maybe MS-13 is making up a higher proportion of murder on its own, I, I the statistics aren't actually good enough to make that kind of determination. There certainly is evidence that that's I, the case. I, I, yeah. I, actually, I think that may be part of the problem here, right, is that the, part of the issue in Suffolk County is not that Suffolk County became a dangerous place due to MS-13 murders, but because the overall murder rate in Suffolk County was so low, a relatively small number of MS-13 murders were accounting for a very large share of the total murders. And... Local news is, like, not in the business of putting things in perspective. They are in the business of, like, covering the most bananas thing that happened today. And so when 40% of the murders in your county are being committed by one gang, which which was the case, it looked like, in, in 2015, um, even though it was, it was a small universe of murders, but MS-13 was a very large share of those murders. And so it means people are going to be hearing all the time clear, about— We're right. talking about, like, in the tens. Yes, yes, right. no, no, no. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, in the, in the much more violent era— of, like, Los Angeles in the early 1990s, I'm sure there was more MS-13 killing in the aggregate, but it was a smaller share of, like, the crime... There was just so much more crime in the United States uh, 25 years ago. And and I know that, like, it sounds like we're picking on local news here, using it as a symbol. It's really not. Like, it is, if you think about it, the way that you hear about crime in your community that isn't literally on your block, where it didn't literally happen to somebody you know who's, like, sharing it via word of mouth, is that you see it mediated through local news. And so the biases of local news, and we've seen this in research on racial resentment, on, you know, research on immigration, on research on public opinion about criminal justice, is that, like, a lot of the dynamic in which people every year think that crime is higher than it was last year when it's actually the opposite, but do not think that crime in their own neighborhoods is going up, is that that kind of imagination gap is what they can only experience through the media. Didn't the Washington Post 
publish an article that yeah, really yeah. hyped up the MS-13 threat? Like, this I, isn't just yeah. like a podunk local TV station. No, it's... it's yeah. The, the Post, I think, Trump appears to have first kind of found out about this through, like, f- about, you know, Suffolk County and Time, and maybe, like, time, a Time magazine story after he was elected. But the Post in 2017 did a big series on MS-13 in the D.C. suburbs that did have, like, good, rigorous statistics in there in places, but in the way that a local newspaper does a big package with, like, making it seem like they're, you know, it's a very big problem, kind of hyped the connection between the unaccompanied minors flow and the MS-13 threat, and, like, also used a couple of stories in different pieces that were clearly the same crime. They were just focusing on different families who were involved, to make, which, like, ended up making it seem like a bigger thing. But the this is kind of a problem of storytelling, right? Because it's really not fair to say, look, because this isn't a big problem— These parents who have had to experience, you know, coming to the U.S. without their children, paying several thousand dollars for their children to come to the U.S., thinking their families were finally together, then having their children, like, drift away from them and having it be clear that they were involved in gang violence and, like, couldn't they couldn't pull them out, and then having their children killed and taken away from them. Like, that is a really... It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing that implicates policies. I'm not—I don't think that story shouldn't be told. But the way in which that gets told makes it seem like, you know, bad people have invaded our part of the world. It feeds very nicely into the Trumpian narrative that this is a foreign threat in our backyard. Right. And that's, I think, why MS-13 has especially recently become such a big focus of media attention and national political speculation is they are exactly the image that Donald Trump wants to use of immigrants, right? Scary dudes. Like, they really, if you look at photos of them, they are freaky looking because of all the face tattoos and the violent imagery that they, that the gang intentionally cultivates. And that is the kind of image Trump wants to conjure up of the modal immigrant when he's making arguments for shutting down legal immigration. Immigration restrictionism has always worked over the course of time, right? Is that you conjure up the scariest possible image of the immigrant group in question. And MS-13 is the modern day way of selling a Latino immigration threat. And it is, I mean, it also does prevent him from the kind of the stuff that everyone could agree was obviously racist, right? Like when Donald Trump said Mexico is sending rapists and murderers, a lot of Republicans went, gee, that sounds a little racist. Surely you're not saying all Mexicans are rapists and murderers. But when he's saying these MS-13 guys are monsters, like, it's really hard to argue with that. Right, you're not going to stand up for that. Right. So so what it so what it ends up doing is, you know, progressive critics of Trump point to stuff like the MS-13 segment in the State of the Union speech and go, he's painting all immigrants as criminals again. And he's not, right? And that's the kind of thing that makes everyone other than progressive critics of Trump go, you're just seeing racism where it doesn't exist. The truth is obviously somewhere in the middle, right? That like Donald Trump is no longer saying all immigrants are criminals. He's obsessing about this particular group, but he's using it to foment this agenda that is going to treat Latinos as criminals more generally. But also more broadly, I mean, you know, I'm sure there's someone at the at the RNCC is listening to this podcast and is like thrilled. They're like, this is amazing, right? Like liberals are going to go and they're going to tell you about how these like face tattooed, machete wielding sociopaths are like not so bad and everybody should just calm down about it, right? And that's like, that. that's... Very much the, like, crime policy debate that 
the law and order side of things wants to have is just one that casts the other side as being like, well, maybe we should calm down about people, you know, being sliced up in, in high school. It's not that big a deal. Um, and it's 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 tough, right? It's a, it's a good form of trolling to like really, really elevate this issue. And I think it's a separate question of like, is there anything constructive about this in terms of making people any safer? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I read one thing we were talking to Fairfax County officials where there had been a lot of MS-13 violence and then it had gone down a lot. Yep. And it went down so much that they lost their like special anti-gang task force funding. Well, right. And also austerity the, budgets. Right. So it was like they no longer like had the gang problem and then the gang problem came back and they were saying like, you know, we would really like that, that money back. And it, and it was one of these multifaceted social service and surveillance kind of things. Where, right. Like yeah. the basic- if, basically, everyone will tell you that if they if their office only like, you know, the local and the local government will say, well, need, we need wraparound services. Federal prosecutors will say, well, the way the way we broke down MS-13 10 years ago was really aggressively prosecuting these dudes. Everyone is sure that they have the key. Right. But the regardless, actually, of like what the key is, like something is the key or or it isn't, you know, what I did not hear from Trump, what I have not heard from John Kelly, either in his chief of staff or his Homeland Security guys, what I have not heard from Jeff Sessions is like, here is my multidisciplinary theory of like what it is we are going to do to make this better, right? It's instead, it's a, a talking point that becomes one in this like whole quiver of arguments about why all kinds of different categories of migration to the United States need to be shut down. Like one view you could have is that just like the Obama administration should have been more worried about Central American gangs, right? That like that should be a higher foreign policy priority. And so now here's like the things we are doing with aid with diplomacy like we're we're going to tackle this and there, more... there actually are a lot of things like that incidentally if you look at like US federal government researchers they're dedicating people in USAID and state and DHS and justice all of whom are designated with to or are designed to train and coordinate with foreign police forces and intelligence services in these Central American countries to do these things. Which is why it's hilarious that state and particularly USAID are being slashed under the Trump budget so that there can be more room for fighting the gangs that state and USAID are. Yeah. And internal, like, congressional. Like, let's fight them over here rather than over there dynamic to it, right? (laughs) We're, we're like, not going to have foreign aid anymore and we're going to have a wall in Texas Right. Well, and and we're no longer accepting uh, out-of-country asylum applications from Central American teenagers in Central America. We are instead making them come to the United States. The weird thing is that, like, the AID approaches have been pretty effective. As far as we can tell, the military stuff or the intelligence stuff that we've done to do counter-gang activities has not worked very well. Cracking down on them really hard for reasons we discussed earlier oftentimes backfires. But when you structure these programs as, like, give people alternative opportunities in joining a gang to make money in poverty-ridden countries, you work with people to leave gangs, you help acculture them, give them job training, and in general embed police forces more closely in local communities rather than having the police forces come in and raid periodically. Which is also what Los Angeles has done. And, like, you know, we were talking a lot about Los Angeles when we talked about the history of MS-13 and not during the current wave, partly because, like, the it's not as spectacular in a largely Latino community, but also because the LAPD did an okay job of, like, actually breaking down the Los Angeles clique. And that's the crazy part is that 
police in a lot of the Northern Triangle Central American countries adopted their models from Los Angeles. Like, they looked at that experience, and the most effective pilot programs in those countries came from studying the United States. And that's that's good, but it's not featuring in the American discourse about MS-13. It's as if it's an immigration problem, not a domestic crime problem, when in reality, it's a domestic crime problem, and we should treat it like a domestic crime problem. So I, I don't disagree with any of this, but I also think that one of the great things about being a journalist is like, I don't have to say we have the answer. I think that <laughs> there true. are legitimately hard problems implicated in what happens when, you know, generations of families are separated from each other by the necessities of labor migration and the realities of immigration law. Like, that seems like a problem that is likely to lead to psychological problems down the road. I think we have a lot of evidence right now that teenagers are in a weird place where they are both extremely emotionally vulnerable and extremely, like, powerful. And we're seeing that, you know, the a lot of the weird stuff is if you look at the kind of micro-level dynamics of, like, MS-13 in suburban high schools, it's hard to tell where the line between bullying and gang intimidation is, right? Like, this actually is not that dissimilar from stuff that happens in high school that isn't connected to street gangs, not, much less transnational criminal organizations. It is true that teenagers can be exceptionally cruel to each other and often have a lot of power to make their each other's lives hell. And, like, if we think about that as a problem for people who are already emotionally dislocated because they've had to migrate, because, you know, they feel alienated in whatever other way, if we understood that, like— extremist and nihilist ideologies are especially, you know, like seductive for these people. Essentially, if we understood that the alt-right is a hard problem in the same way that like people being attracted to MS-13 is a hard problem, I think that that might, you know, maybe it would just make us a little more comfortable with the idea that there are problems that we cannot like 100% solved through policy, right? That there is never going to be a world in which there is no such thing as a street gang. Well, and the, I mean, in particular, though, just the, the I mean, the original policy question that, that Trump was putting on the table, which is like, what do you do with unaccompanied minors who come to the United States? I mean, it's it's hard because it's conceptually hard. And it's also hard because of the sort of gridlocky ways of the American government, right, where the sort of in the abstract, it seems like you should be pulled to either like a pole of generosity in which you're saying, look, I treat this as a legitimate humanitarian emergency that we have a profound obligation to deal with. And therefore, we need to pour a lot of resources into settling people well. Which and is what we do when we're and, bringing in refugees from abroad. Exactly. In, in, a, in, a, in a positive, deliberate kind of like okay, we are committed to this, we're going to make it work. Or else there's another poll where you're like, look, this is this is bullshit. Like, we are not taking these people in. This is some kind of scam. It's dangerous. We're going to do, you know, along the lines of what, what Trump is saying. Like, we're going to turn people away. We're going to treat teenagers like they're adults. You, you know, blah, 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 blah. But America is still, has American political institutions, right? And Barack Obama, even if he wants to be very generous, cannot conjure up 
the appropriations to go do this out of thin air. It is also true that the exact loopholes that Trump is now proposing to close were endorsed by the Obama administration. They then took that back when there was Democratic when there was backlash from Democratic members of Congress. But let it not stand sure. as the truth that Barack Obama was like, hey, teenagers, come on in. Well, let's do it the other way then. But it's still the case, right? So Obama may say, OK, I want to crack down on this. But then congressional Democrats right, exactly. do a blowback. But the congressional Democrats who pushed Obama away from a hard line did not themselves have the power to conjure up the new appropriations right. that would make a generous policy work. So you're continually I mean, this is not unique to this problem, but there's a lot of areas of American life where we're stuck in a kind of drift and a, and a back and forth where our political system is just not that decisive, right? And it's very hard to implement a like a pure vision when a novel problem arises. We try to sort of muddle through. But some of these things, let lots of teenagers come to the United States with tenuous relationships with their family, complicated relationships with organized crime, and then don't dedicate a lot of financial resources to helping them. Yeah, I think it's like, that's, not a, that good, a that's not a good idea, it's, right? And it's not an idea anybody had, right? That's, it's not like anybody thought that was a good idea. It's just it's what we did because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a high enough priority. The system doesn't work that well. Just like the Clinton administration, right? You look back and you're like, why did they decide to just like send boatloads of criminals to El Salvador? And I mean, I'm sure the answer is like they didn't have a lot of high-level meetings no. in which they thought through the consequences. No, and if you talk to, you know, Clinton era immigration officials, they dis they disagree over whether they had to start deporting as many criminals, which is what they claim. And Republicans in Congress were saying at the time, oh my gosh, we didn't think you were going to deport that many people. Huh. I mean, the system is obviously janky in these ways, and it's obviously not designed for long-range thinking, let alone long-range thinking when it comes to consequences for foreign countries. That is not something the U.S. government has been very good at historically. But it's also the case that what often makes it out of this sausage factory are the most popular parts or the things that it's easiest to rally people behind. And the things that are the most popular are often the worst ideas <laughs> with, like, really catastrophic collateral consequences. Um, so being really harsh on gangs or really restricting immigration of people from El Salvador, like, yes, maybe that deals a little bit with the situation that you're talking about, Matt, of, of unaccompanied kids coming in who might have ties to MS-13, but it also punishes a lot of unaccompanied kids who are in dangerous situations or might be victims of MS-13. And these are always trade-offs. And the trade-offs don't get talked about in terms of, like, the actual human costs. It's just we need to protect ourselves from these gangs or we need to do X thing that really plays well on national television. But X thing often hurts Y numbers of people who are larger than the Z numbers of people who would be helped by X thing. And I think the other thing is that at the same time that any people coming into the U.S. from Mexico has been construed as a border security problem, even if they're, you know, pursuing asylum and turning themselves into Border Patrol officials— Crime and instability on the Mexican side of the border has become construed as a problem for the security of the U.S., even as, like, El Paso is one of the safest cities in America, the fact that Juarez on the other side has a lot of problems is construed as a problem for the sa safety of South Texas. And so when we do this, as you know, when we take an approach to pushing people away that stops at the water's edge— 
and then, you know, get freaked out about what's happening on the other side. It's that same kind of bouncing between utter indifference and utter panic dynamic where there's everything that we are doing can pretty easily be traced, you know, to, oh, well, maybe down the line, this is going to cause more instability in countries that are regionally pretty close to America and countries where people can cross by land into the U.S. Uh, But after doing that, we kind of like take one deep breath and go, ah, no more criminals. And then, you know, turn on the binoculars and see that crime is happening in the places we've sent people to and decide that that is somehow a problem that requires us to push more people out. And with that... At the conclusion of another week where we've solved all the world's problems. Yeah, having no constructive solutions to this problem, um, (laughs) really. uh, I I think, you know, one thing you can do, though, is uh, tell people about the weeds. Uh, Join the Facebook group. Continue the discussion there. Perhaps you have a really great solution for these problems, and you can let us know there um, and and check out the show. Uh, With that, uh, thanks to to Zach for joining us. Uh, Thanks to Peter Leonard, our producer. Uh, Thanks to you all. Uh, Weeds will be back next week. And don't forget, you might also be interested in Worldly, Vox's foreign policy podcast, which I host normally. And I have these people on occasionally. So come listen. Fine. Bye.